I don't know what childhood was like for you, but for me growing up, I, I, I felt like I was a pretty good kid. Anyone else feel like when you were a kid, you're like, I'm a pretty good kid, right? And, and you look around and you can always see those kids that aren't so good, right? And so in comparison, that was you. So yeah, I would have totally judged you when I was a kid. Um, but really just in comparison so that I felt better about myself, right? But, but as time went on, as, as I got into my high school years, I started dabbling in the party scene. Uh, I, was, I was slowly but steadily losing my moral high ground. And really, by the time I got to college, I realized that I was no different than the kids around me. I spoke the same, uh, did the same things. There was really no verifiable difference between me and those who lived the typical college lifestyle in America. And this is when Jesus confronted me in a way that I could not ignore. He confronted me with my love for this world, with my seeking after the temporal pleasures that I thought would satisfy me, and he began to show me the radical nature of his love and grace, and he started to reorient in my mind, in my heart, what I thought a life of following him looked like. And we're going to see that in our passage today, that if if you encounter or if you have encountered the real Jesus, he is going to make you uncomfortable. You can't meet Jesus face to face and forget it. He shows you who He is, He messes with your life, and He makes you question everything you thought you knew about yourself, about God, or where life is found. Now let's just be real for a minute. It's it's easy to turn on the news, to flip through the news feed on your phone, and to see all the evil out there, right? How could these people do such things? I can't believe in light of, of... of all the the bad out there. Uh, Obviously, I must be good, or or at least better than that. But Jesus makes it very clear to us that each individual person on this planet is going to give an account to Him. And the account that we render to Him is not going to be on a scale of comparison with anyone else on this planet. His grading system is an unchanging system. And we are going to see today in our passage what Jesus requires of every individual on this planet. And I hope it makes you uncomfortable. Well, if you've been with us the last two weeks, we've been in our explicit gospel series. In week one, we looked at uh, the gospel message itself. What is the gospel? We looked at 1 Corinthians 15 that tells us that Jesus died for our sin, was raised on the third day to reconcile us to God. At the heart of the gospel and Jesus' coming, living, dying, and rising again was to bring us back into communion with God. And last week we looked at the storyline of all of the the Bible, the entire storyline of God sending, sending out His Son as the climax of human history. Redeeming his people back to himself, redeeming his kingdom through the sending of King Jesus. In the next three weeks, we're going to look at this gospel message in comparison to some of the false gospels or false ideas about God that are all around us today. And this week, if you have your notes and you're literate, which most Americans are, you see that it's the gospel versus moralism. And I want to argue that this is perhaps the greatest deceptive 
gospel in America is a gospel of moralism. And we're going to see from our passage today that no amount of good morals or good living makes us um, right before God. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read the account of the rich young ruler from Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. This account is also found in Mark and Luke, but we're going to read from Matthew's account primarily today. And the main idea on your notes there is, is a simple statement, but a profound one, that good deeds and moral living can't save anyone. We are saved by the gospel alone. That's the main idea. If you want to walk away with anything, is that your good deeds and your moral living cannot save you. We are only saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read our passage, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, the man came to him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. All right, so verse 16, we learn that this man approaches Jesus. He comes up to Jesus. And we learn in verse 22 that he's a rich man. We learn in verse 20 that he is a young man. And in Luke's account of this uh, interaction, it says that a ruler came up to Jesus. So he's also a a man uh, of authority. And most commentators will agree that the man approaching Jesus is most likely a really powerful religious lay leader, perhaps of the Pharisee party. And this young man approaches Jesus and he asks him a question. And I think it's a question that's relevant to all of us today. People are still asking this question today. The first question he asks on your notes there is this. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What good do I have to do to have eternal life? Now, one thing I want us to notice here is that as he's approaching Jesus, he addresses him as teacher. This is significant because I I believe that uh, there's nothing in this text that would suggest that he is approaching Jesus to mock him or to be hostile or to debate with Jesus. He is coming to Jesus with a sincere question about eternal life. And in Mark's account of this interaction, it actually says the man ran up to him and knelt before him. There's this almost this desperation of like, this is the one question that's burning in my soul. And I need to lay this before the feet of Jesus because I can't figure this out. And he comes to Jesus and he says, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He's asking a really good question. But he's asking the wrong question. Essentially, this is what he assumes in his question, is he believes that some moral behavior or moral action can guarantee his salvation. That's his assumption. What good must I do? In other words, I can can do it. I can attain it. Human beings have the ability to be good enough to earn salvation. 
And we see Jesus' response to this question with a counter question, a statement, and then an answer. Verse 17, Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? I love this. Because in the man uh, coming to Jesus with his question, he's communicating that at some level, he believes Jesus is the one that has the answer. It's a big question. And he's saying, hey, I've looked around. No one else seems to have the answer. And then here's Jesus on the scene. And we have to understand at this point in time, Jesus has been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing people, doing miraculous things. He's become the talk of the entire region. At this point, some people are saying, could this be the Messiah? People are saying, is, is he a prophet? Some think maybe he's a reincarnation of a prophet of old. But Jesus wants to test this man in asking him this question of, why do you ask me? What do you think qualifies me to answer your question? That's what Jesus poses to him. And then he gives this statement. He says, there is only one who is good. You're asking me a question about what good you need to do? Well, there's one who is good, and that is God alone, who is infinitely good, who is the source of and standard of all goodness. And then we see Jesus' answer to the question. He says, if you would enter life, keep the commands. You want to enter life? Keep the commands. In other words, God alone is good. And God has already told you what is good. God has already given you His Word. He's given you instruction. You know what God requires of you. He laid it out very clearly for you. Do what he says and you will live. Now, we need to understand that as we look back at all the commands that God gave to Israel, even through the law, that it is for our good, for the blessing of the whole, to, to walk in a way that honors God. However, as we look through the laundry list of laws in the Old Testament, they were intended to reveal to us the reality that no person could ever live by this standard. No person could ever completely obey all of these commands that God gave through His Word. And that's what the law was intended to do. It was intended to reveal how helpless we are. And so Jesus is really testing this young man and saying, keep the commandments, knowing that it's impossible for this man to do this. Jesus, in a sense, is setting him up. But then the man comes back with question number two, and he says, well, which ones? I know there's a lot of them. So which ones do I need to really make sure matter the most? Which ones can guarantee that I inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes on to quote uh, some of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 and Leviticus 19 as well. So verses 18 and 19, he says, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's the thing. Maybe this is the first time I, I saw this this week, but, but my initial read of this passage, I was not blown away by what Jesus said. I was blown away by, by what he didn't say. All the commands that Jesus gives in this passage to this young man are horizontal commands. 
Everything that has to do between brother and brother, between man and man, woman and woman. It's, it's, hey, this is how you should behave amongst yourselves, how you should treat other people and honor other people. Jesus conveniently omits all the passages or all the commands that have to do with his vertical relationship with God. That's very significant, and we'll come back to that in a minute. So here's the thing. He says, which commands do I need to obey? And the young man looks at his life, and specifically the commands that Jesus gives, and he says, I think I've done this. He says, I actually think I've done this. Or at least he thinks that he has done this. And yet, his third question reveals to us that he still knows he's lacking something. Right? Jesus says, keep the commands. He's like, which ones? Well, here's a list. Okay, I've done that. I'm still lacking something. What is it? That's his last question, right? What do I still lack? So here we see that even people who live good moral lives, who achieve worldly success, still know deep down that something is missing. And the funny thing is, most Americans spend their entire lives chasing this American dream, chasing this success, while the people who arrive will tell you it's not the answer. And yet most of us will just spend our whole lives chasing something that will never satisfy us. It's, it's complete foolishness. But this rich young man who's achieved a lot in his short life knows something is missing. And he's asking Jesus what it is. And that's when Jesus goes straight to his heart. Verse 21. Jesus says to him, If you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus is essentially answering his first question through this statement or through this challenge. What is required of any human being in order to have eternal life or to enter into the kingdom of God? Jesus says it's perfection. You want to be perfect? Let me show you the path. And this is what you need. And I think at this point in time, Jesus is creating a tension in this man's heart because he's successful, he's young, he's morally upright, and yet he would recognize and he would never claim that he's perfect. And in the other two accounts of this same interaction, instead of saying, if you would be perfect, Jesus says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. And what are you lacking? Jesus says it's perfection, and this perfection only comes through one thing. And Jesus gets at this man's heart by telling him to sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and follow him. Essentially, Jesus is saying, forsake what you treasure most. Forsake what you love more than anything else and come follow me. Jesus is exposing this man's heart. And he's telling him, turn away from your self-reliance and your moral efforts and come to me. I am the one thing that you lack. There is only one way of perfection. And that's through Jesus. But sadly, we see in this man's response 
what his heart really loved and trusted and treasured most. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. For this man, the thought of giving up his life of luxury to follow Jesus was too much for him to fathom, and so he leaves sorrowful. Remember, he's coming to Jesus with a genuine question. Jesus says something that shakes his world, and he walks away sad, forfeiting the offer of heavenly treasure from Jesus, who just happens to be that heavenly treasure. Jesus has masterfully exposed this man's heart and what he treasures most, and he masterfully confronts this man's misconception of God because this man thinks he has what it takes to earn salvation through his own moral efforts. I don't know if you've ever realized this or not, but the Bible can be incredibly offensive. There are times where you should read the Bible and it should make you squirm. Like, oh, that feels so uncomfortable. Because Jesus refuses to allow us to be comfortable if we're paying attention to what he has said. Verses like Isaiah 64, 6, it says this. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. What? That every single human being, God says, is infected and impure. And all the good stuff you think you do that makes you righteous and good, God sees it as trash. Everyone okay with that? (laughs) That should offend you. What, What do you mean? I've done a lot of good things, God. And you count it as trash? That should mess with us. It should get our attention. But here's the thing, is that God wants to confront us with the spiritual reality of our deadness and our enslavement to sin because He loves us and because He wants to show us the significance of life that He holds out to all who would follow Him. And I think it's really important to bring in a a portion of a verse from Mark's same account because it really exposes Jesus' heart and motive with this rich young man. This is what he says in Mark 10, 21. He says, And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Jesus will say hard things to you because he loves you. Jesus will confront you with your false gods and the things you worship and treasure most so that you will see that he is infinitely better And until you do, you do not understand the gospel of salvation. You do not understand the magnitude of the grace of God and the eternal treasures that are found in Christ. This man, like many of us, loved his earthly wealth and trusted his moral living. And Jesus exposes it in an instant. And this man isn't willing to count the cost. He's not willing to forsake what he thinks is the way of life or the way of life he desires. And this is where I want to bring back the commands that Jesus didn't list for this rich young man. 
namely the first of the Ten Commandments, which is this, have no other gods before me. In other words, the first commandment says that whatever captures your heart's affection most is your functional God. And here, I want you to have no gods before me. I want to be the God of your hearts. I want to sit on the throne of your life. And Moses puts it this way in Deuteronomy 6, 5. In what Jesus quotes as the greatest commandment. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is a call to fierce love and devotion. To love God above everything else. These are the commands from which obeying all the other commands flow out of. If you don't get this right, none of the other stuff matters. Because all the other stuff is a response to this reality. And this is what I believe all of us are lacking apart from a mighty work of Jesus, is that we don't love God. Or at least we don't love Him above everything else in our lives. And I think most people in this room, most people on this planet would say, yeah, sure, I'm not perfect. I do sinful things. And and I'll, I'll admit that. But the greatest command we fail to obey day after day after day is to love God above everything else. Which is the first and most important command. From which all else comes. And this is really the heart that Jesus is getting at with this rich young ruler. He's saying, young man, you lack a love for God. And I'm going to show that to you. I'm going to graciously, kindly, lovingly hold up the mirror to you to show you that you love money and that you trust in your own moral performance so that you'd be convicted over your sin, that you would repent and you'd cry out to me for salvation. See, a a bad takeaway or a bad interpretation of this passage would be, all right, church, let's go sell everything, give it to the poor, and then let's just go follow Jesus. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like? Jesus isn't here in the flesh. Salvation doesn't come through our act of selling everything we have. Jesus doesn't want our futile attempts at being a good person. What does Jesus want? He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants your devotion. That is what He is after. But we as humans instinctively think we need to earn God's love through our behavior as opposed to obeying God out of our love for God. You did nothing to earn, nothing to deserve God's love. It's a a gift of His lavish grace through His Son. It can only be received by faith. And then the life you live, you live in response to that great salvation. Not to earn that salvation or prove you're worthy of that salvation, but because He loves you. And He lavishes that love on you through His Son. And after this young man leaves sorrowfully, Jesus turns to His disciples. And He uses this interaction as as another significant teaching moment for them. And I think a teaching moment for us that points us to our great need and our great God's provision, starting in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, I don't know if any of you got the visual in your head of a camel, very large animal, going through the eye of a needle, very tiny hole. But Jesus is saying, it's easier to squeeze this huge animal through this tiny little hole than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. At which point the disciples rightfully say, like, well, not much fits through the eye of a needle, so how can anybody be saved? How can anyone find this salvation? The disciples are shocked and asking this question. And Jesus looks at them and I believe again loves them says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus is making the point to his disciples and to everyone that salvation comes from God alone. God alone has the power to save. Salvation is a supernatural work and gift of God that he provided through his son, Jesus Christ. Every person on the planet is helpless and hopeless unless God intervenes. And this is exactly what God has done in the gospel through sending His Son in love for our salvation. Jesus lived the perfection that we couldn't live. Jesus died the death in our place that we deserve. And Jesus rose. He conquered death, our greatest enemy. And He has the keys alone to grant eternal life to all who trust in Him. Jesus is our perfection. Jesus is the one thing needed for salvation. And through the gospel, we get Jesus. It's not just a pass to heaven. It's entrance into the presence of God. Our greatest treasure. Proof of God's love for us. I think we would do well to recognize that Jesus loves us enough to hold up the mirror. To hold up the mirror to what you love most. To expose your heart to you. To expose the things that you deceptively are trusting in for your salvation. To say, hey, look at this. This is what you're trusting? You're trusting in yourself? Or are you trusting in me and my provision of the cross? What are you really trusting in? And Jesus' point to the rich young man, his point to the disciples, is that only he has the power to make your dead heart come back to life. Only he has the power to make our good deeds actually godly and glorifying to God and not filthy rags. And so if Jesus were to come to you and to say, go, fill in the blank, for your own life, and come follow me. What's that fill in the blank? Is it sell everything you have because you love and trust your money more than anything else? Is it forsake that sinful lifestyle because you are addicted to uh, just the carnal pleasures of this world through sex or alcohol or drugs, whatever it may be? 
Is it, man, you're, you're seeking power and prominence. Maybe it's, it's, it's walk away from your reputation or your pedigree, your success, your status, anything else you look to for significance. What would it be for you if Jesus said, go and do this and come follow me? What would Jesus expose as your heart's greatest idol? This rich young man wanted to obtain all that this life had to offer. He was a ruler. He was rich. He was respected. He was morally upright, outstanding citizen. And he came to Jesus thinking he could also earn eternal life. Jesus reveals to us that eternal life and salvation is a gift from him. It can never be earned. You can never be good enough. And I just want to challenge us, church family, and remind us that if we are obeying, obeying God's moral law or striving to be good people out of just sheer uh, duty or because we fear or we're afraid of the consequences if we don't oppose to love, that we are missing the heart of the gospel and we are missing out on deep relationship with God. What's your motive in obeying God? What's your motive in walking in God's ways? If it's not because you are overwhelmed by the love of God that He has lavished upon you through the gospel, you're off. You're off. God sees that as as worthless. And He's saying, no. Forsake your efforts. Cling to My grace And follow me. And I'm going to reveal to you the path of life. See, here's a reality for us church family. We can only truly love God if we've embraced his love for us. 1 John tells us that. He says that this is love. Not that you loved God, but God loved you. And sent his son for you. If you don't first believe that God loves you, you're on the wrong path from the get-go. And need God's what Jesus did for me and I re- he sent his son to be our perfection in our place and to extend eternal life and treasure in knowing him in exchange for our own insufficient moral efforts at trying to be good enough so church family I just pray that we would be a people that are motivated by the radical love of God And that our love for one another, as 1 John also says, is evidence of our love for God. Because they say, hey, if you don't love one another, you don't really love God. That's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement, right? (laughs) Like, you, you know how you know love, you, you know how you know and you can be confident that you love God, you love one another. And if you hate your brother, you don't love God. Something else that should rattle us a little bit, right? It should shake us. That's what Jesus does. He leaves us uncomfortable, but he pushes us towards hope. And he calls us to follow him and to love him above all else.